Good morning. Welcome back to our study of the strong-willed, rebellious, reluctant prophet named Jonah. When we hit pause on Jonah's story last week, Jonah had tried to run away from God's will for his life. And then God sent, as you remember, a literal storm into his life, not only to get his attention, but to discipline him and bring him back in right relationship. What was this all about? Well, Jonah didn't believe in God's plan, didn't, wasn't on board with God's plan for Nineveh. God wanted to offer the opportunity for repentance and forgiveness to the Ninevites, and Jonah disagreed with that plan. He wanted nothing to do with it. And so God, as we said, brought this literal storm into Jonah's life. He finds himself being thrown overboard of the ship that he was on, trying to go in the opposite direction from God's will. And this morning, as we hit play on Jonah's story, Jonah is vomited onto a beach, vomited out of the belly of the big fish that he's been riding around in for three days. That's where we pick up our story. It's in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, when God saw, I'll get the right chapter here, here we go, 17, now the Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. At the end of chapter 2, which we studied last week, at the end of this prayer, this psalm of thanksgiving that Jonah offered while he was in the fish, Verse 10, then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Now, I want you to think about this with me. There's two verses, two verses out of four entire chapters about this fish. And these two verses about the big fish have, over time, become the big debate. Did this really happen? What kind of fish was it? Was Jonah really in the belly, or was he stuck in the esophagus? All of these kinds of questions have been asked, and I guess there's a part of me that understands it. It is a fascinating part of the story, but if I'm being honest, I don't find the big debate over the big fish worth much time uh, debating. Either you believe in miracles or you don't. That's where I'm at with it. Either you believe God's word is accurate or you don't. When God's word says, but the Lord provided a great fish, the Lord commanded the fish, either you believe God did a miracle here or you don't. The species of fish really is not that important to me. And I'll go a step farther and say this. It's not even the greatest miracle in Jonah's story. If you think that a man surviving three days inside a big fish is impossible, well, then chapter 3 is going to make your head explode. I hope you're ready. Lord, please help us this morning as we delve into your word together. I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you want to teach us, what you want us to hear from you. I pray that you would encourage our hearts. I pray that you would challenge our hearts. And we thank you so much for what your spirit will do in these moments together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Would you join me in Jonah chapter 3? Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to just read the chapter. You can follow along with me. I'll make maybe a couple comments along the way just for clarification. And then uh, we're going to maybe talk about uh, how we best apply this chapter in our lives. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Remember where we're at. Jonah just got vomited onto a beach by the big fish that he's been riding around in for three days. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Takes us back to chapter 1 verse 1 when God came, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, gave him a mission gave him a mission to go to Nineveh with a message from God that there would be destruction coming to preach against their, their wickedness. And now, after all of these things, Jonah yields to God's, uh, God's command in his life, God's, God's will for his life. The Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. And thankfully, <laughs> verse 3, we have a little sigh of relief. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command, and he went to Nineveh, a city so large it took three days to see it all. And we're not exactly sure if uh, that's talking about the perimeter around the city or if that's how long it took to walk through the city. Uh, we're not exactly sure what that's describing, but we do know this. We do know that modern archaeology has demonstrated that uh, this description of Nineveh as a very large city is absolutely accurate. Verse 4, on the day that Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, here's the message, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast. They put on burlap or sackcloth, that's um, material made out of camel hair. It's very uncomfortable on purpose to show their sorrow. It's a, it's a way of expressing sorrow. Culturally, in, in today's culture, we might wear black clothing to a funeral as a way of expressing our sorrow, our grief. In these ancient days, uh, this, uh, this material uh, would be put on as a way of expressing sorrow, also as a way of expressing repentance. And it's not just uh, the people within the city. Look at verse 6. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, took off his royal robes, dressed himself in burlap, and sat on a heap of ashes. We see even the humility being expressed from the king of Nineveh. And then the king and his nobles, they sent this decree out throughout the city. Now, what we're going to read is a decree that is amplifying what's already been happening in the city. There's already people who are repenting, already people throughout the city that uh, are... Uh, in, in sorrow in their sin and turning from their sin, and the king just amplifies it with this decree. No one, not even animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. They're, they're, everyone and everything will participate in this fast. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning 
Everyone must pray earnestly to God, and it doesn't stop there. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. This is not just a prayer to some God for appeasement. This is a prayer of repentance that the king is uh, instructing the people throughout the city to participate in. Pray earnestly to God. Turn from their evil ways. Stop their violence. And listen to verse 9. I'm going to come back to this sentence at the very end of our sermon today. So don't miss it. Who can tell? The king says, who knows? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. You might remember we described Nineveh earlier on in this series. When it says it's a great city, it's describing the size of it. It was a large city because it's the capital city of Assyria. Again, we can't be sure that uh, the, the three days journey is what it took to walk around it or through it, but we know that this was a very large city. And later on in the text, we get to the very end of chapter 4, we even find out the population, 120,000 people living in Nineveh. And listen again to Jonah's prophecy. So he goes into the city, and this is his message given from God to give to the people of Nineveh. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed or overturned. I read that. I mean, is that it? That, that's your sermon? There's no mention of God? There's, there's no instructions on what to do? It's a pretty short sermon. It's pretty vague in, in, as far as how do we respond to this. And yet, look at the response. The response, the entire city from the king and all of the ruling elites to the poorest person in the street, 120,000 people repented and turned to God for mercy and forgiveness. This is the greatest revival in human history. If you thought that Jonah surviving three days inside of a fish was impossible, this is more impossible. Think about this. Imagine it in our modern context. Imagine a prophet showing up in Manhattan today, Times Square. Imagine a prophet showing up a prophet of God showing up in Washington, D.C., standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, giving this exact message, 40 more days and New York or Washington, D.C. will be overturned. And then all of Manhattan, including the mayor, all of Washington, D.C., including the president, all repented and turned to God for mercy and forgiveness. It would be mind-blowing impossible you'd have a better chance of surviving three days inside a fish. This was a miracle of God. And see, the miracle, the, 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 the response that we see, the results that we see, yes, are miraculous, but you need to understand that God had been, it's bigger than we, than we even see here, God had been preparing for this moment in Nineveh for years. 
Here's what's been going on historically in the background in the people's lives of Assyria leading up to this moment. Assyria had been dealing with a lot of internal political issues for quite a while. They were militarily, they were growing, they were getting stronger, but there was some weakness there, and it didn't help that there was political tension happening behind the scenes. It was creating a lot of tension with the political elites, a lot of uncertainty. So they were always on edge. Add to that the fact that there was this group of northern tribes that was constantly threatening them, and because they weren't, at this point in history, they weren't very militarily strong, uh, they, they won a lot of battles. They treated uh, their prisoners absolutely with absolute brutality. So they had somewhat of a, a fear factor reputation going on, but there was a real threat from these northern tribes, and it made everybody nervous. Then they suffered through a plague. In 765 B.C., a lot of people died. Now, you remember uh, not that long ago uh, a, a pandemic and what that does to people's uh, worldviews and, 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 and their behaviors and, and just how fear can take over, right? This is not that long in our history. So they, were, they suffered through that. Two years after that, they were absolutely freaked out by a solar eclipse that took place. Remember, this is a polytheistic culture uh, in ancient days, so something like a solar eclipse often would be interpreted as doom and destruction and something bad's going to happen. It was not, so everyone's nervous about that. Four years after that, they suffered another plague, another major plague. Imagine going through COVID twice within 10 years. The people of Nineveh were rattled all of these things from, from the political elite to the person in the street, everyone had been through things that was making them uneasy and uncertain about life. And then, in the middle of that, this foreign prophet shows up with a message of coming destruction. And not just any prophet, a prophet who had been riding around in a fish for three days. This is where we can make some... I'll call it educated speculation, all right? This is not in the text. This is us going back into history, understanding the culture, understanding the time period. The people of Nineveh worshipped a pagan god called Dagon. Dagon was a fish god. Half man, half fish. They basically were worshipping Aquaman. That's what was happening in 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 Nineveh. So I want you to think about that. That's their primary pagan god in Nineveh, this fish god Dagon. It is possible that Jonah's time in the big fish, let's make some scientific assumptions here, what we understand about like if he was actually in the belly, not the esophagus, with the acid of the fish, what would it have done to his skin? There's some speculation on that. If that's what happened, his skin most likely would have been bleached bright white. And there is some science behind that. 
We don't know that that's what happened. We're making some educated speculation here. But I just want you to imagine a foreign prophet shows up. These rumors are swirling around. Why Why is this guy's skin so bleach white? That's weird, right? Isn't that weird? Doesn't he look weird? Why is that happening? And rumors begin to get around quickly about, yeah, because he survived three days in a fish. And now he's in a city that worshiped the fish god, Dagon, a.k.a. Aquaman. You put all of this together, all the things that they had been through, the foreign prophet, the things swirling around perhaps about who he is and where he's been. You put it all together, I think it does help explain how did God get their attention so quickly through Jonah's simple one-sentence message, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. It at least helps explain how God got their attention. But it was God who did a miracle in their hearts. We may be astonished and should be by the miracle deliverance of Jonah, but our mind should be spinning over the miracle repentance of Nineveh. These are the last people on the planet that you would expect to respond to God in repentance, and yet once again, God has done the impossible. And I am wondering if maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. I'm wondering if there's someone here that just needs to be reminded that nothing is impossible with God. When we say nothing is impossible with God, just to make sure we're all on the same page in case you're making a wrong assumption of that word, the word nothing does not extend to sin. It is impossible for God to to sin. It is impossible for God to break his own character, to break his own nature. But God can absolutely break the laws of nature because God is sovereign over his creation. God absolutely can act within his holiness, within his love, within his righteousness, within his mercy and sovereignty and compassion to do the unlikely, the the implausible, the improbable. He can do impossible things. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary and told Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah, do you remember her response? Her response was, how is that possible? How could that possibly be? I'm a virgin, she said. And Gabriel explained the how as a miracle of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the angel Gabriel said this, for nothing is impossible with God. And maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. Maybe you've been praying for physical healing in your own life and the life of someone that you love and the doctors are saying it's not looking good and healing seems impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. Maybe you're struggling to break free from the emotional pain of your past. A clear mind without anxious thoughts just seems impossible to you, but nothing is is impossible with God. Maybe you want to see restoration 
in a broken relationship. And when I say a broken relationship, I'm talking like Humpty Dumpty broken. This looks, the pieces of this are impossible to put back together. But nothing is impossible with God. Maybe you've been battling a spiritual fight with unforgiveness. You've been hurt, you've been wounded, and you just, I'll never be able to forgive. Or some addiction that you've been battling against for years. You've won a few battles along the way, but you just feel like it is impossible to win this war. But nothing is impossible with God. Maybe you have been praying for the heart and life of someone that you care about to change, and you've been praying for such a long time, and you're at the point now where it just seems like it is impossible. Their hard heart will never be softened, let alone break and turn to Jesus. It's impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. Look at the lengths to which God was willing to go to pursue the heart of a rebellious toad like Jonah. Look at the lengths to which God was willing to go to pursue the hearts of wicked, violent, pagan people like the people of Nineveh. When you combine God's relentless, steadfast love with his limitless power, we begin to catch a glimpse of what Gabriel meant when he said nothing is impossible with God. My prayer this week has been that this truth from God's word will encourage your heart because I know there's got to be someone who needed to be reminded of this. And I'm hoping that being reminded of the miracle working power of God has in some way lightened the burden that you've been carrying. But I've also been praying that we might be challenged by what we've read this morning. I want us to think about this simple message that God gave through the prophet Jonah. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Hebrew word that's translated, I don't know what English word you have in your version this morning. You might have destroyed, you might have overturned, maybe you have something a little bit different. But in the Hebrew, that word has two meanings. It's a double meaning word, and it absolutely can mean destruction. And that's how the people of Nineveh interpreted it when they heard that word. But it also can mean changed by repentance. That's still God's message to a broken world today. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? It's death. That's one option. But it's not the only option. The wages of sin, what, what our sin deserves is eternal separation from God. Yes, but the gift of God is eternal life. That's the other option. Well, how do we get that other option? Well, we, we receive that gift through faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died for us as a sacrificial payment for our sin. Who then was buried for three days and rose again, proving his victory over sin and death, that we would have faith in his sacrifice, faith in the power of his resurrection to make us right with God. 
to forgive our sin, to give us his gift of grace, to give us his gift of eternal life, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but solely by his love and grace that he's offering this and we receive it by faith. This is how hearts are overturned. When Jesus met a young rich ruler in the Gospels, the young man came to Jesus and he asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and, and Jesus challenged him, here's what you need to do, give up your wealth and come follow me. And, and the young man was not willing to do that, walked away from Jesus sad. And then Jesus made this observation about what just happened to the people that were standing there listening and watching this unfold. The observation was this. It can be very difficult for someone who has wealth to be saved. And it's not because they're more wicked. It's not because someone who has wealth is, is somehow uh, inherently more wicked than someone who does not, someone who is poor. We're all sinners. His point was that someone who has wealth may not feel the same draw towards God, uh, a same, the same kind of need for God. Why? Because in their wealth, they find their identity, perhaps, or they, they find their comfort, perhaps. They find uh, that everything that they need has been satisfied through their wealth. Why, why do I need God? You're just making an observation that that can create a challenge, a spiritual obstacle, well, the people listening to Jesus and his observation, they were kind of rattled by that, and they, they asked this question, who, who then can be saved? To which Jesus responded, listen, this is Luke 18, 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Just because it may seem unlikely that someone that you know, someone that you care about, their eternal soul, that they may be absolutely very, very far away from God. And, and you look at them and you're like, this person will probably never repent. They'll, they'll never want to live a, a Jesus-centered life. It just looks impossible. They're the last person I would ever imagine. We need to continue to pray for their salvation because no one is beyond God's reach. No one is beyond God's love. I know that we, for good reason, are easily fascinated with the big fish miracle. I, I get it. It certainly is a wonderful illustration of, of the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus certainly thought so. He used it as a reference when he was talking about his own death, burial, and resurrection. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, there were some Pharisees, religious uh, law professors, and, and, and they're trying to make Jesus look bad, trying to undermine his credibility. And, and so they said to Jesus, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. Well, he's been doing miracles. That wasn't the issue. They, they're just trying to undermine him. And Verse 39, Jesus replied, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. The only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, we talked about this at the very beginning of the series. Jesus believed that Jonah was a real prophet, believed that his story was true, all of it was true. But he uses this as an illustration to talk about his own upcoming death and resurrection. He said in verse 44, as Jonah 
was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man, so will Jesus, be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Nothing's impossible with God. This is the point that Jesus is trying to make. But I want you to go one verse farther. We, we see that Jesus believed in the historic record of Jonah and his story, which is pretty, uh, pretty wonderful that, that Jesus uh, verifies that for us. And we see that he's using it as an illustration to depict his upcoming death and burial and resurrection. And it certainly highlights the power of, of God's miracle working power. But look at verse 41. The people of Nineveh, this, the, the great fish, an amazing miracle, but Jesus doesn't stop there. The, the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it for the bigger miracle, in my opinion. They repented. They repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. And then he, of course, makes the point, now someone greater than Jonah is here. He's referring to himself. Nothing is impossible with God. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. I'd like to offer you a challenge based on that statement. Today is October the 1st, right? And as far as I know, October does not have 40 days. They have not changed that, correct? They haven't got to that yet. They have changing a lot of things. So as far as I know, still, still 31 days in October. How about this? What if, we, what if we launch off of that statement of Jonah in this way? What if for the next 31 days, throughout the entire month of October, starting today, what if we commit ourselves to pray for hearts to be overturned. Starting today. What if for the next 31 days we committed ourselves to pray for three people? And I, I wrote uh, in your notes, I, I put three fill in the blanks there for names. And I'm, I'm just gonna challenge you, put names there, people you care about, people you love. And do not shy away from putting a name down that you th in, in, that would look like there is no way. This is the last person. I love this person, but I'm telling you, he or she is the last person that would ever want anything to do with Jesus. Put their name down. And pray for them. Because nothing's impossible with God. I also put underneath those three names our community, and our country. What if for the next 31 days we committed ourselves to pray for revival in our community, revival in our country? And you say, Pastor Mark, you are out of your mind. Have you seen? Do you not watch what's going on? Our country is not so but so right now. It is upside down. Yeah, I know. And maybe the idea of our community or our country repenting and, and humbling themselves to God seems impossible. But in the words of the king of Nineveh, back in verse 9, let's pray. And who knows? Maybe God will do the impossible. Join me, please. Join me 
in a commitment to prayer every day. Put these, use that uh, piece of paper or some, you know, if you want to use a note card, whatever you want to do, but put those three names down. Put that somewhere where you will see it every day as a reminder throughout this month every day to pray. And who knows? Let's trust God to do what God does, the impossible.